interested. And that is it. Paul, may I ask you to come up and preach? He's been waiting a while. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you for his incredible love for you. Thank you for his, his love for this family and his desire that, that we will grow well and strong and bring you so much glory. And I pray now, Father, that as he brings this word to us, that you will soften our hearts, that you will open our ears, that we will hear what it is that you have prepared for each one of us today. And Father, I know you have. So I just pray, Father, for him now. Speak through him in your loving, merciful way. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, guys. We are, we are in a series. If you're just joining us this morning, we're in a series called What on Earth Are We Here For? We're discussing, discussing, discussing. We're discussing the vision of One Hope. We believe God has given us a very clear mandate. It's a scriptural mandate. Every church should have something that sounds something like this. Say the mission with me. Being filled and filling Stellenbosch with the hope and the life of Christ, which is an abbreviated form of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey, baptizing them in the name of Jesus Etc. So we are talking about well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to be filled personally? How are our families going to be filled? And how are we going to fill Stellenbosch with the hope and the life of Jesus Christ? And so last week we spoke about one of the ways we do that is that we proclaim the gospel. And you can go and we're, very, we're trying to go extremely practical in this series. So if you don't know how to proclaim the gospel, how often last week you should be able to go and listen. And there's four ways that you can be part, really simple ways that you can be part of telling people the good news of Jesus. And it's far less intimidating than what you imagine. This morning, we're going to be talking about discipleship, which is our second vision point. If we are going to fill Stellenbosch with the hope and life of Jesus, and if we're going to be filled with it ourselves, we, are needing, we need to be mature disciples of Jesus, and we need to make mature disciples. So we're going to talk about this. I thought it would be quite an easy topic until I started all my prep for the sermon, and this is a, is a difficult topic. So because discipleship, we'll get in a moment, but is essentially, the scriptural way of understanding it is a very doing word. It's not an intellect word. It's a doing word. So I just want to say right up front, I've worked really hard, and I'm still worried this morning that it's going to come across a little bit legalistic and a little bit like you need to tick this box and you need to do that. So if you hear that in my preach, please just remember this little disclaimer right up front and just in your mind say, Paul's trying really hard not to say that, not to be legalistic, all right? But it is very difficult. So how do we, how do we become mature disciples and how do we help make other Mature disciples. And guys, I, the reason it's so difficult is because it's quite challenging to the way we often think. All right? And so I'm going to throw out a few challenges to you this morning. They're quite straightforward. The first challenge is to overcome the way that we understand discipleship or the way that we define discipleship. So I'm going to give you a really, really simple definition of discipleship to follow. That's what discipleship is. It's to follow somebody in its simplest form, right? Where we get stuck is that in our Western way, Fee doesn't like that definition, which is all right. In our Western way of thinking, we often think of following something as agreeing. I like something on Facebook, so I follow them. I like a philosopher, so I follow the philosopher. And it's about agreement. It's about intellect. It's about thinking, right? We think pupil, we think student, we think head-based, we think an agreement of some kind. Now, what you need to understand, you have to, this is a big shift in our minds. We have to understand that when the Bible speaks about discipleship, it doesn't just mean agreement. It doesn't just mean being the best understander of God's word. It actually means that we are supposed to obey. We're supposed to do something. You see this in the way that Jesus has his disciples. What do they do? They like just think, like literally, physically, what do they do? They don't just sit and be taught. They actually do something with what they're being taught. They walk with Jesus every day. Jesus sends them out and says, right, you've watched me heal. Now you go and heal. And so the, the best way I can explain this maybe to try and, try and help us understand kind of the culture that we swim in, think about what happens in school, right? From our very earliest days, what happens? Someone tells you, someone gives you information, 
and more information. And then they test you on how well you can regurgitate what? The information. It's knowledge-based. Think about, think about going to university. Most in this section over here, you guys are on university. How do they teach you? Do they take you out a lot to go and practically do things? No. Most of the time, you come to a lecture, you sit down, someone lectures you. It's knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Even the way that Western churches run. Dare we go there? Right? We're doing it in some form this morning. I'm trying to push you to obedience, but we are learning. We're teaching. It's, it's head-based. So think about the difference between that and an internship, which would have been so much more familiar to the biblical readers. In those days, if I was a baker, I would teach my son or my daughter to be a baker. I wouldn't sit them down in a classroom and say, right, this is flour, this is water, this is this. I would say, come with dad, come and watch. I'm going to show you how I make bread. I'm going to show you how I make apple pie or whatever it is. Now you watch me, now you try. No, 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 you, you did that wrong. Oh, you did that great. Okay, try again. Now watch me again. Now watch, I'm going to watch you. Go, 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 try it. And eventually there came a point where the dad would say, right, now we've got this new guy, Zach, He's come and joined our bakery. You teach Zach. Do you see the difference? It's a massive, massive shift in the way that we think. The biblical view of discipleship, rather than our university view, must take deep root in us if we're going to understand and practice being and making mature disciples. And that's a great challenge because we swim every day in this culture. We're comfortable in it. In fact, for most of us, we prefer it. Far nicer just for someone to philosophize around what we ought to do than actually go and have to do it. We love talking about injustice. We love talking about what's wrong with our country. Very few people actually like getting their hands stuck in doing change in our country. It's much easier to just go to Australia. Right? And if you go to Australia and you're watching, God bless you. But it's much easier. It's much easier. Okay. Let's turn to Scripture. Matthew 28. Let's start Matthew 28. The Great Commission. We know it. This, immediately we see this. We see this at work in the way that Jesus gives this command. Jesus came, verse 28, verse 18, and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. So Jesus has got the authority. Now he's saying, I'm giving it to you. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations. Make Followers of Jesus. That's what you need to hear. And that the first part of disciples is proclaim the good news. People come to know Jesus. They say, I follow Jesus. That's the first part. Then teach these new disciples to obey all the commands. Now, I would have expected that to say, teach them what I have taught you. Help them understand. He says, teach them to obey the commands. Now, of course, implicit in this is the idea that you've got to understand. I'm not saying we don't have to understand. I'm not saying knowledge is bad. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying that in our culture, what we've managed to do somehow is to very neatly extricate knowledge from obedience. And we see this all over our churches. I see it in my life. I'm sure you can quickly think of examples in your own life where we agree in theory with something but man, it's hard to practice it, and we don't like to, so we'd rather just go to another you know, Bible study where we talk about it some more, rather than actually going and doing something with the knowledge we already have. Okay, I think you get the idea. And then, really implicit in the text of Jesus, so think about it like this. You've got these disciples, there's about 120 of them. We're going to go to Acts in a moment and see there's a whole bunch more, just in the same few months. And now you've got these disciples, and you begin to do what? Well, Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I command you. So you start saying to them, all right, well, Jesus said, we ought to do this, we ought to do this, we ought to do this. And somewhere along the line, you get to, I mean, it wasn't there, Matthew 28, but somewhere along the line, one of the commands of Jesus. So let's say at point five, you say, oh, yes, and Jesus said, you must teach others. So you go, me? But I'm just learning. Yes, I know, but one of the commands of Jesus is that you must teach others. And so we see this cog put in motion, this wheel put in motion. Okay, so I don't want to labor this, but I think you've got that, right? The biblical understanding of following Jesus is more about doing than thinking. 
It's more about doing than knowledge. It's more about doing than understanding. And the concept in, Christ, in biblical Christianity is that maturity is not linked to knowledge. And this is where it gets so, so tricky in the church because you look around and the person who understands the Bible the best or who argues the best in a life group setting, we think, oh, they are a really mature believer. Whereas actually the biblical, what is it, the grid for maturity is what do you know and what are you being obedient with what you know? So a person who's been saved for two years might be far more mature than a person who's been saved for 40 years. And that's really tough to get our heads around because when a person grows, we just see baby, toddler, Joshua doing his thing in worship. Hope he wasn't distracting you doing his, it's his seventh birthday today. He's having a party from early morning. And on and on we go and you just mature. It doesn't matter. You can still be completely infantile in your emotional EIQ, whatnot, you still grow your stubble, you still grow up, you still, your biceps still, you know, you still just mature. It's not the same. Time spent in church, time spent following Jesus, believing in Jesus does not equal maturity, right? And that, so that's the first challenge. It's really, it truly is, guys. We need to spend some time meditating on this because it is hard for us to come in, into, into an understanding like this when we have phrases like, I mean, you know it, dot, dot, dot is power. What is power? You know that phrase? What is it, Sharon? You're nodding your head. There we go. Knowledge is power. That's what we taught from our infant years. You guys have got it. You, you're way cleverer than me. So, what do the disciples then do? So, Jesus gives them this explicit instruction. I want you to go, and I want you to teach others to obey the commands that I've given you. So let's follow the text and see how they actually do that. So if you go to Acts with me, get, get your Bibles if you've got it. It's so good, by the way, to have a Bible in your hands. Just so I know you can read on your device, and that's wonderful, and I'm old-fashioned. But it really is nice to just know your way around your Bible. So go to Acts chapter 1 with me. And in Acts 1, I won't labor it, but in Acts 1 and verse 8, we just see Jesus repeating exactly what he says in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses, etc. Now we see that playing out in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to paraphrase it for us, but Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls. There's 120 disciples Men and women in an upper room, they're busy praying. They're waiting. Jesus told them to wait. And suddenly the Holy Spirit falls. They start to make a whole big noise. A crowd gathers. Peter stands up. This crowd must have been huge because Peter begins to proclaim the good news, what we spoke about last week, and says 3,000 people come to know Jesus. All right. Can you imagine being in that disciples' elders' meeting, right? You're sitting there, you've got 120 people to care for. One sermon, 3,000 people get saved. You're already trying to figure out, how do we take these 120 people and teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us? Now we suddenly have 3,000 people who know nothing. And what do we have to do? Well, we go to the instructions of Jesus. We need to teach them to obey Everything that he commanded them. We've got to baptize them. Yes, those things. But the essence, we have to teach them to obey. How do they even start? What do they, what do, they do with these guys? Well, Jesus has just told them what to do. Teach them to obey. So they go about trying to do that. And we get to Acts 2 verse 42. And this is what it says. It says, all the believers. So this is now the 3,120 odd. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles are somehow, in some format or other, they're teaching them. They devoted themselves to fellowship. That's a, if, you, if you're old school Christian, that's a well-known word. For some of the younger guys, fellowship is not a word we use all the time. It's basically mandatory fun. It's hanging out together and having fun. I, I heard that phrase on our men's camp this last weekend. Such a great phrase. Mandatory fun. But it's, it's, it's having food together. Like they actually carry on and say that to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to pray. So that's what these 3,000 odd people began to do. A deep sense of awe came over them all. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day. That's cool. Every day. 
they met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And I can imagine them saying, Lord, we've got 3,120 people that we have to teach how to obey you. They come from pagan backgrounds, many of them. Please could you just give us a moment before adding more people. But it just as you read the book of Acts, people just continue to flood into the church. And then you get to, so oh, by the way, date-wise, we had 80-30 here. So just after Jesus' death, we had 80-30, right? 80-31, if you go forward to Acts chapter 7, this is happening in 80-31. So one year the church has gathered like this, devoted to the apostles' teaching, all joyful, mandatory fun, having meals together, learning, obeying. I do believe that this time in the Bible, Acts chapter 2, is quite a unique period. I think because there were such a lot of people in such a short space of time, I don't think it's a model that we should meet every single day. I don't think it's a model that we should all pool everyone's finances. I think it's wonderful to be generous and to care for those who are poor. But I think what you need to understand here is that there's a group of people who've come to Jerusalem for a festival and God is going, what do we need to do here that these people can go out well-equipped? Well, for one year, they're going to meet every day. For one year, they're not going to work. Other people that have houses are going to sell them so we can just pay for everybody to come and just learn like this intensive, most intensive crash course you can imagine. Does that make sense? All right. Acts chapter 7, it starts to get a little bit hairy. Stephen stands up, full of the power of the Spirit, speaks terrible things to the Pharisees, very inconsiderate, very offensive, and um, the, they decide to kill him, which they do. So this is now where it starts to get a little bit hectic. And we actually we're doing something on Tuesday Think Night around the persecuted church, which has just been phenomenal, just learning about this exact time period and like the 500 years afterwards. And this is what happens, verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. So when you read that, that's the only church at the moment. 3,000 something people plus some more in the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered. Just think of that picture. Like sheep, suddenly like there's something really dangerous in the middle and you just see these sheep scattering. They were scattered through the region of Judea and Samaria. Sound familiar from Matthew 28? You're going to all the world, starting in Judea, going into Samaria, and then the ends of the world. Some devout men came and buried him, etc., and Paul is there. So that happens there. A couple of years pass. You keep on reading in Acts. AD 34, three years later, Paul is saved, who's Saul, right? So he persecutes the church for three years. He goes after the believers, and then he himself comes to salvation. Now, where we're going to focus a little bit of time is Acts chapter 11. And actually, Acts 11 goes back to AD 31. Are you following me? Timeline? Okay. So Paul's not important at this point. AD 31 is where Stephen was killed and where the people scattered like sheep. So you'll, you'll see it straight away. Meanwhile, Acts 11 verse 19 the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyrus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. So what I want you to see here is that this is generation two. Remember I spoke about how the wheel started to turn and they realized like we're going to have to obey these commands. This is now generation two. Persecution breaks out. Thousands of people flee Jerusalem for their lives. But as they go, they carry a torch. And with that torch of the good news of Jesus, everywhere they go, they just say, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Oh, yes, we heard about that guy. Wasn't he a prophet who did that stuff? We, we heard some amazing things. Then we heard he died. Oh, well, you, maybe you don't know the end. He actually came back to life. I'm here to tell, and, and on and on, they begin to tell these people, and the Spirit of God works powerfully among them. Then Acts chapter 11, verse 22. So literally the verse after we've just read says this. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, what you don't get from the scripture is that that's 11 years 
later. That, that separation between those two verses from when Stephen was persecuted and when Barnabas, the church hears, oh wow, there's awesome things happening in Antioch. It's 11 years. So we're in AD 42 around that time. All right, I want to make a few application points as we think around discipleship. The first one is this. We carry a 2,000-year-old baton in our hands, right? Let me, let, me, let me find someone here. Who can I ask? Razan, you confident. Razan, who passed the baton of salvation to you? Who, who, who was instrumental in you coming to know Jesus? Okay, a, a specific person. Would you grow up in a Christian home? Okay, so Christian parents carrying some of that baton, and somewhere along the line, someone passed you a baton. Okay. Now, some of you would have a story like Rosanne's that's a little bit less clearly defined when you cross the line of faith. Others would go, I know the moment. I know the day. I've got it written in my Bible. I celebrate it every year. Right? But someone carrying a baton passed it on to Rosanne. Now, we're going to call him Person X. Who passed the baton to Person X? Well, someone else. And who passed the baton to them? Well, someone else. And you begin to see, there's, there's actually, I wish I could actually just take some time and get some of you up and make you, Warren, why don't you stand up here? Do it for me. Let's just do it quickly. Warren, you be, you be Simon Peter over here. Okay. Here's Simon Peter. Yeah, Zacchaeus. Over there. Karen, will you, Karen is the first person that Simon Peter shares the gospel with. Karen, take the baton from Warren. Where's the baton? Here. Impromptu thing. There we go. Pass the baton. Pass it to Bates. Pass it to Johannes. Pass it to Ali. We're somewhere around 100 AD. All right? And I'm not going to keep on doing this. But you pass it on to Jono. And somewhere, I mean, doesn't it just blow your mind that the, the gospel that I hold in my hand today, that came to me through my parents, that came to know Jesus through my grand, who had a radical conversion in her mid-40s, who came to know Jesus through reading of the Word. That was the baton that was passed to my gran and some other friend that she spoke to, a brethren minister she started speaking to, that, that, that line goes directly right back to Simon Peter, James, John, Jesus. It's an incredible thought that through all these years, through persecution, through the scattering of the church, through the martyrs, that line has come to me and to you today. And so I want us to see this picture of a 2,000-year-old baton. You know a baton, right? Like a relay race. Is that, that's not lost on anyone. Like a relay race, and they pass the baton, and they try to make sure they hold it, because often they drop it, and then everyone's in tears. And, you know, shame. The Olympics has been hectic this week. If you know, I haven't watched it, but I read about this poor... Anyway, it's not anything to do with my sermon. So anyway, you can, go and, you can go and read BBC. Acts chapter 20, we see a continuation of this baton, when it says in verse 4... Talking about Paul now, who's now come to faith. And we're actually here in AD 57, right? So you can keep doing your timeline. We're another 10 years on from those 11 years when Barnabas went to that church in Antioch. We're another 10 years on. It says, several men were traveling with Paul. They were Sopater, son of Phyreus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. Who's pregnant? There's kids' names here. Where's Kara and Vicia? Over there, there's wonderful kids' names here. Gaius, that would be a strong male name from Derby. And then you'll know this name, Timothy and Tychicus and Trophius from the province of Asia. They went on ahead. So these are men that Paul is now discipling. Ten years later, they're with him. He's going around. They're traveling with him. And then you know the book of Timothy, to Timothy. And this is what he says to now Paul. And this is a further ten years. So this is written in AD 67. So we're now 37 years later. Paul is writing to his protege, his disciple, his follower, the one who's learned to be obedient to Jesus. He's writing to him, and this is what he says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. So how many generations are there? There's the apostles, then there's Paul, then there's Timothy. Then he says to Timothy, now teach these truths to other trustworthy men or other trustworthy people, who will be able to pass them on to others. So in this one little verse, you've heard me, Paul, taught you, Timothy, now teach these truths to other trustworthy people, generation three, who will be able to pass them on to others. 
Generation 4. Are you beginning to get a sense of this? That the Scriptures, this is the mandate of Scripture. It's always that disciples make disciples. We're never supposed to exist just for us. It's always supposed to be for the one another, for the world, for proclaiming the gospel. Okay. The second thing I want you to notice. The first thing I wanted you to notice was that we're carrying a thousand, two thousand year old baton. The second thing is, did you notice how ordinary the people were? Did anyone pick that up when I was reading in Acts chapter 11? Let me go back there. Yes, we read the big names. There are some big names. There's Peter. There's Paul. There's Barnabas. There's the big hitters. There's the Billy Grahams of the world. We have them, yes, and God does use them and praise God for them. But did you notice that the people that took the gospel to Antioch, which if you read a little bit further on, is the first place that the church is called Christians, that believers are called Christians. It becomes a powerful church. This is all we know about them. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered, who were they? Well, go down a little bit and maybe you'll find out. You don't. Verse 20. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch, that's all we know. That's all they say. Some of the believers, just ordinary men and women. These people worked jobs, went into marketplaces, ran away when they were persecuted. They proclaimed, come follow Jesus. Come follow Jesus. And they taught people. It's amazing to me. Let me actually read this little verse here. Some of the believers who went to Antioch, we read that. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. So 11 years later, these disciples have not just hit and run. They've actually built up a community here. That When Barnabas arrives, he's like, this is amazing. You read a little bit further, he goes and fetches Paul, brings him back, and they begin to teach this Antioch group for more than a year. Every day, they begin to teach this Antioch group. But I want you to see that there's a 2,000-year-old baton, and I want you to see that it's carried by ordinary men and women. Some believers. Some believers. The ones who were scattered. Yeah, those ones. Yeah, those ones. Ordinary. Then I want you to see just how ordinary their lives are. What's, what's the extraordinary method of discipleship is the question I want to know. What's the, what's the silver bullet? What, what's, well, how do I really disciple people? What book do I need? What should, seminar should I go to? It's, it's so ordinary. We always see the same ingredients in Scripture. This is, these are the ingredients. When people get together to learn how to obey God, God's Word is preached. Always. It can be discussed it can be proclaimed, it can be studied, but it's always with a, with a view to learning to obey God's Word. That's the critical thing, right? Then there's always community. Just think about the early church and the fact that there are no Bibles. There's no printing press. And try to squeeze our privatized, religious, like, leave me alone, I'm at home reading my Bible kind of Christianity into that. It can't fit. You don't have a Bible. All you do is pray and go together to hear God's word. Having meals, devoted to fellowship, so ordinary. Always gathering, always devoted to the gathering. They always remember and acknowledge Jesus. They take communion. Now we just say, oh yeah, take communion. Great, get the little miracle meal, you know, the little thing of the little sanitized, COVID-friendly. Guys, communion is a highly upside-down kingdom concept. God killed Savior, dead, murdered. It's so offensive that when Jesus starts teaching his disciples, he's got a huge group of disciples, and he starts teaching them, hey, I'm going to die, and you're going to have to eat my body, and you're going to have to drink my blood. It says tons of them just walked out. And then Jesus turns to his closer disciples and says, are you going to leave me as well? And they say, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. It's this deeply offensive and, and these guys, when they, when they eat and they have remembering of Jesus, as he said, it's a reminder to them, man, this is not an ordinary good news. This is something upside down. It's, God's asked us to live another completely different way. And then you always find them praying. Corporate praying. Peter and John in prison, what do they do? They get together, they pray. They're waiting for the Spirit, they pray. Over and over we see them praying and praying together in groups and on their own. Peter on, you got the idea. Ordinary people living ordinary 
lives. And guys, that's the second great challenge. If the first great challenge is to understand that true discipleship to Jesus means obedience, the second great challenge to overcome is that we look for something dramatic. Let's be honest. We want someone heroic. We seek it. We want it. I want something Damascus Road experience to happen in my life. Can I tell you why? I've meditated on this over the years for a while and and try to figure out why is it that I long for that. Can I tell you why? For me, I'm not putting this on you. It might be you. I'm lazy. I don't like the ordinary hard work of every day, every day, every day. I want God to do something to me that's irresistible. That's so big and so dramatic that I'm like, oh, I can't do anything but worship you now. Whereas actually, that happens, and that's like little springboard moments in our faith. Praise God for those high moments. But the ordinary experience of Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. Someone else called it anointed plodding. Step by step by step. We look for the wild love story. We look for the unbelievable job offer. And we feed off social media lies of what our friends' lives are really like. We look at social media and we go, well, that's what I want. I want to have holidays like that guy. I want a job like that lady. I want whatever it may be. And instead, disappointingly at first, and then so gloriously as it begins to come alive to us, instead, we find God using flawed men and women in very beautiful ways, but in such ordinary journeys. And God is the extraordinary God. God's writing the extraordinary story, and our lives just can feel so painfully ordinary. What do they do? What's the silver bullet? Oh, they met in homes. Wow. They went to church. Wow. They had meals together. Serious. This is what they did. They prayed together. Guys, ordinary life is hugely Hugely impactful. Let me, let me give you a metaphor here. Take a, take a married couple. Who's married the longest here? Gerrit and Nicolette. It's probably you. How long are you guys married? 105. What? <laughs> 45 years. I don't know if anyone here is married longer than 45 years. Take, this is your moment to stake your claim. Right. If you married for as long as that, or even if you married for five years, honestly, you ask a married person what's been more important to their marriage. The big proposal? The dramatic gesture, the, the fancy expensive Valentine's dinner, the, the big expensive wedding, or is it thousands and thousands of little moments which on their own look insignificant, where instead of responding with impatience, you're just gentle in a moment. When you know that someone needs a touch, instead of just you know, watching the TV, you actually stop and hug them and say, it's okay, it's going to be okay. It's thousands of little moments. Would you, would you say that's right in your marriage? Certainly right in my marriage. And I'm pretty sure every person who's married will tell you that you can go on the fancy Valentine's dinner. And that's great. And we like them. And they're good. Especially if someone else has you know, given you a voucher. Even better. <laughs> but those moments are only good because of the thousands of little insignificant moments that led you there. If you haven't had the thousands of little ordinary moments, then you just sit on your phone on Valentine's night anyway, like you're sitting at dinner, but you're not really engaged because you don't have each other's hearts, right? And there's so many examples. We could speak about friendship and how you make friends. And uh, yes, we have these high moments where we go on a road trip, but also it's just the thousands of little moments where you study together and you do this together and you go on a walk together. Ordinary, ordinary lives. And we don't like it. That's the challenge. We don't like drip feeding. We don't like, we don't want the preacher to say, come to church. We don't want the preacher to say, read God's word every day. We don't want the preacher to say, come and fast and pray with us. For goodness sake, who would give up food? <laughs> Being practiced in community. We don't want people to, and the stuff is so, you should know it by now. What is all this stuff? It's so ordinary. Yes. And so if we're going to mature as disciples in Jesus, we have to settle that number one, it's about obedience rather than knowledge acquisition. Let me ask you a simple question. What do you already know that you haven't yet done? Why do you need more knowledge? You already know stuff. I know so much stuff. I've been to so many conferences and I will keep going to conferences. They inspire me. But 
I need to stop at some point and say, God, what do I already know? What do I need to do with what I already know? And the second thing we must settle, that God writes very beautiful stories through very ordinary people doing very ordinary things. Right, I'm going to end off getting very practical. I've promised you guys a very practical series on how does One Hope do these things. So I want to speak for a little bit about how One Hope makes mature disciples. Are you guys all right? I took a little longer in that text than I wanted to, but I really want to ground us in God's Word. So it's not just an idea that we, we leave here with. I want to make an assumption this morning that all of us in the room have a desire to grow. I want to make an assumption that all of us want to be mature believers. We all want to follow God in a way that is obedient. And stuff gets in the way, right? So we have a a room full of people who really desire to be mature believers of Jesus. But why doesn't it happen all that much? Why do we look at the Western church and see such weakness and shallowness in the Western church? Let me ask a, a, a quick indicative question in the room. How many people would love to be discipled by somebody? Just put a hand up. If you would love someone to walk this journey and teach you and instruct you and walk with you, who would, who would love that? It's plenty of hands in the room. All right? I've longed for this. I've said, Father, give me a spiritual father. When Doug passed away, I was so cross. That's the crossest I've been with the Lord. And I said, Lord, I just feel like I had a spiritual father. And then he dies. This was a guy who was in our congregation that passed away about a year and a half ago. Um, and then God just said, your time of being of being fathered in some way you need to now father you need to actually look for others and and father them but the simple maths how many of you right now so we saw all those hands go up how many of you right now are actively discipling somebody can you see the maths can you see we've got a problem a mathematical problem the number of people who want to be discipled, and the number of people who are willing or feel able, often we don't feel able to do this, right? So that's another question, is why, why don't we disciple? Well, we don't disciple because you feel like, I don't know enough, because it's all about knowledge. You don't disciple because you think, well, no one has discipled me. How do I disciple someone else? You, you might think, I don't even really know what this is. Sounds great, but I don't actually know what you're <laughs> talking about, which is okay too. Does that resonate? For me, that, that's the reasons that I come up with around my excuse world, you know. Um, three ways that I want to encourage us that we are discipled at One Hope. Guys, number one, we are devoted in private spaces. Discipleship does not start with someone coming and saying, can I disciple you? Discipleship starts with God's Word, with private prayer, with what Riley helpfully I don't know where you got it from, Riley, but you gave us this phrase on student camp. We're talking about habits of grace. I grew up calling them disciplines. <laughs> Sounds very aggressive. Habits of grace. We, guys, we have the greatest discipler ever in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His written word, in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Have you ever considered that every single relationship you ever have is with a flawed person except for one? God will never misunderstand your motives. God will never incorrectly criticize you. When you can't figure out what's going on in your heart, He already knows. It is the safest, the only one. You won't have that with your wife or your husband or anybody except God. And this is where we come to as our primary starting point. Our primary discipler is God Himself. Through the Holy Spirit. The word says, your word is a lamp to my feet. Your word is a light to my path. The Bible lays out what we are supposed to obey. So we read it, we meditate on it, and we say, God, what are you telling me to do? You are my discipler. But this is not a a call to a privatized kind of space. We keep in step with the Spirit. We obey Jesus. We learn. We grow. We mess up so much. Sometimes we win. Yeah. Sometimes we lose. Sometimes, and on and on it goes. It's so ordinary. The second place that One Hope is committed to seeing people mature in Christ and learning to make mature disciples is that we are committed. We are devoted. Words, Paul, words. We are devoted in the gathered space. So we devote ourselves in the private space and then we devote ourselves 
in the gathered space. Friends, let me tell you that in my life and in almost every mature believer, in fact, every mature believer I think that you speak to, if you ask them, where did you get discipled? The majority of them will answer you in the normal rhythms of community church life. I heard a sermon. I had a coffee with a friend and someone challenged me. I, I, I went for a dinner and I was a student. I mean, guys, I had a, I had a couple, Terry and Claire, who took me into their home as a babysitter. I was just like, you know, they loved it. But man, do you know how much I learned from that couple? Without meaning to, they just discipled so much into my life. So here's the, here's the exhortation here. Lean in to what already exists rather than hankering after what doesn't exist yet. I, so I get this often. I feel like guys are waiting for the perfect life group. You know, the life group where everyone's a cyclist. And it gets more and more niche around like what I actually need. This is what I, if, if this church could provide this, then I would be a mature disciple. If you had a better woman's ministry, if you had a better this, if you had a better this. Guys, if we do not lean in to the easy space, like this is just come, come together. Let's just gather once a week. Let's have a life group somewhere in the week. These are the easy spaces. If we don't lean into the easy spaces, how are we going to then suddenly think we're going to lean into the more difficult, intensive space where someone goes, so Jono, how are you really? Come tell us, bro. Where's the... No. <laughs> no this, is put you... this is not the space for that, but the life group is, and that's harder. That's harder, right? If you do not feel disciple, this is going to sting a little bit, but are not regularly prioritizing the gathering of believers, what biblical leg do you have to stand on? The Bible is so abundantly clear, guys. I, I, I'm not arguing with you. This is God's Word. He makes it so clear. You can go and read in the New Testament alone. There's over 100 verses where it uses the phrase, one another, one another, one another. You can't be, it's always in, in the context of community, of coming together, of rebuke one another, encourage one another, point out sin in one another, pray for one another, let God heal you as you pray for one another. All of these one another's, you can't do sitting at home with your TV and your remote. We need each other, one another. Right? God's word is explicit in these commands. So we must answer the question, God, am I obeying your word? Am I not obeying your word? I'm going to leave that with you. I want to ask a couple of questions here that are very pertinent to my own life, so hopefully they'll speak to you as well. Are you too busy to be meaningfully involved in the community of God? Is it busyness that's keeping you from gathering regularly with God's people. Let me, I'm not going to put something on you. I'm going to just ask you, what do you think God's thought on that is? Don't ask me, ask God. I want to ask you, are you more committed to our rest or our weekend away or our weekend lie-in than to God's community? And again, I want to just ask you, what are God's thoughts on that? I'm going to leave it there. Meaningfully part of God's community is a beautiful space that God has given us to grow us. Do you know who grows the most when you disciple other people? You. How many of you have experienced that in your life? When you, you go on a mission trip and someone says, hey, won't you please lead this? Me? Won't you? I remember the first time I preached. I was 19 years old. I was living with our pastor. I was staying in the outside flat. He had an office attached. And he just leaned back in his chair. He could look into my room from his chair. He just leaned back and he said, Paul, what plans do you have on Sunday night? Oh, none. I thought he was going to invite me for dinner or something. He said, I've been called away. Would you preach? Oh, I remember my stomach just going oh, to the bottom of my, of my chest. And I remember getting so afraid and then thinking, yes, I want to preach. I want to preach. I want to preach. And a whole week just being terrified. And I still remember to this day a terrible sermon that I preached. <laughs> but I don't think anyone would remember that sermon. But you know who remembers that sermon? Me. I preached on radical running. And I preached my heart out, and I'm sure it was not very good. But in that moment, I was so discipled. And the same thing happens. Every, it's just the story again and again and again. You ask someone, how did you, how did you really get knitted in here? Well, I started serving. I started doing this. I joined the music team. I'd, anyway, you get the idea. Guys, we have so many discipleship spaces. Let me just, for the sake of being explicit, let me name them. Life group. Family groups. Student groups, young adult groups, mixed groups, it's such a great place to start. Such a great place. If you're not in a life group, 
You don't have to be. Jesus still loves you, but I really want to encourage you to join a life group. It's such a good space. What about our Serve Steady space? Those of you who particularly have justice burning in your hearts, which as we follow Jesus, more and more, I'm not, I'm not a justice guy in that sense, but as I follow Jesus, more and more I feel stuff bubbling in my heart. Such an easy avenue. It's organized. It's, it's, it's operating. Some Saturdays you just go. It's all there for you. You get booty rolls. I mean, it could not be easier. Um, missions, they were up on the screen a little bit earlier. In July, if you want to stay local, we have a, a, a holiday club that we do in Serve Clutersville. And for a week or two, we serve kids as their parents are still at work. And we just love on them and care for them and love Jesus into those little hearts. That Robin will be leading that. And then we go to Zim every year over that time. And we make it as cheap as possible and as accessible as possible. And we have such fun. And we go up into Zim. That's another wonderful way to be disciple. Tuesday Think Night. Every Tuesday, Jono leads it with myself. We get together. We think. I know it's a little bit opposite to what I'm saying today. But we think and we ask questions. And at the moment, we're looking at the persecuted church and the history of the church in the first 1,500 years. And I'm sitting there and my mind is being blown. And I'm like, this, this changes so much. It's wonderful. Just volunteer is another discipleship space. Just volunteer. And then we have a very specific strategy which has been underground for a long time. And we haven't shared it publicly. This morning will be the first time that we do. And Riley is going to come and share that because Riley is an absolute gift to us in the discipleship space. And she leads our discipleship. We call it Life on Life, or my group is called Life Together. And um, tell, us, tell us all about it. Good. Um, yeah, so basically, um, Life on Life missional discipleship is um, basically f- small groups, four to six people, uh, max, and they're selected by the, the leader. So it's a very relational space. It's, it's a prayerful space where the leader thinks and, and prays about, God, who do you want me to invest my life in? And, uh, and it's a high commitment. So there's homework. You meet together. You want to do life together. You spend time to really be able to um, serve each other and love each other and know each other well. And um, there's a set curriculum that we want to go deep in the Word, but then deep in each other's lives. So we, wanna, we don't want to just stop the, the kind of emphasis is on training, not just teaching. Teaching is a part of training, but we want to see people's lives trained in the ways of what, what does this mean? We, we, what does it mean that God is holy, and how does that change how we live out our Christian life? Okay, so we want to see lives, the, the focus is to see lives transformed and to see people trained and equipped to do that in others. And so... One hope we want to see a culture developed of people that are um, being meaningfully discipled and it just to be part of the regular rhythms of life is that people are being discipled and that are multiplying their lives in others. And we feel that these life-on-life groups are a a critical piece of that. But the key to understand is that the the goal is not that we'll have just more life groups or life-on-life groups. The goal is that we'll see lives transformed and people will get a vision for what it's like to invest their lives in others. And so that's what Life on Life groups are. There's, um, we have about 11. We started about four years ago with five of us. And we started five groups. And uh, there's also a time period. At max, they're three years. Because, again, we want to we wanna multiply out. And today we have around 11 groups and about 42, 45 people in groups. And so the idea is to start small, to dream big, and to go deep. And so we're hoping for a time that we'll see anyone that wants to be in one of these groups, that there's a group for them. But ultimately, we want to see people get a vision for discipleship. And it might not be that... The, they lead a group like this. It's, it might be an opportunity that they, they come through a group like this and they say, well, I can, I can gather a couple of friends and go deep with them and see lives transformed. And so that's kind of the heart of what Life on Life is. Thanks, Riley. So that's, that's necessarily, I don't know if that's the right word, um, a slow burn. So that's why we haven't made it a program. It's not a program. You can't just sign up yet. But we have, what did you say, 40-something 40, 40 people in the last four years that we now just slowly each each two years or three years those groups multiply and it gives us additional space for more people to be in those life on life groups and that's a a really amazing space for us let's let's close with a
tiny few applications. Actually, let's just close. I think we're there. Ordinary people living ordinary lives, carrying an extraordinary message, empowered by an extraordinary God. Yeah. Uh, two things as we close. One is, what is God one thing? I'd love you just to, just for a minute, one thing that you've heard this morning, that you say, God, I want to obey that. Let's, let's put this into action right now. What is one thing that you've heard that you say, God, I would love to do that. I'd love to see that change in my life. Why don't you just spend a minute in just personal prayer as you do that. Thank you, Father, that none of this is based in works. None of us are to earn our salvation, Lord. But Ephesians tells us so clearly that you have prepared good works for us to do, and we want to do them, Lord. We're not scared to be doers of your word. We're not scared to obey, Lord, but we, we come with cultural deficits. We come with church deficits where we've just known a certain way for so long. We've, we come through church cultures where often generations gone by haven't had this, Lord. And so we, we don't feel like we've been well-discipled or we feel as, as older people, we don't feel like we've got much to give. Would you, by your Spirit, come and inspire fresh confidence in us, just how ordinary it is, how you use just everyday people who are willing to just open their mouths and just say, hey, let's, let's get a coffee once a week. Let's read a book together. Let's pray once a week or every second week, whatever it is, God, just ordinary everyday things. And over time, just like in a marriage, God, we just see how those little insignificant, seeming insignificant things can breed such life and hope and strength in one another as we try and do this as best we can. In Jesus' name. On your hand when you came in, you would have got a, a little stamp. You should have got a stamp. What we're trying to do is every one of these preachers, we're trying to do something to help remind you of the preach. So last week we got seeds. When you drive into the One Hope house, there's a garden bed we just dug this week down the right-hand side. There's a garden bed on the left-hand side. They are planted with those seeds. I well, hope you guys are growing yours already. And that's a reminder that as we proclaim the gospel, the rain of heaven comes down, the Spirit works, and people's lives spring up. This week, this is a, a reminder, a thankfulness reminder. I wanted to encourage you to think about someone who's impacted you on your spiritual journey. So whether that's a mom, a dad, a gran, a work colleague, whatever it is, just think about somebody. Try and get hold of their details if you don't have them. Find them on Facebook. I got contacted on Facebook from someone I met about 20 years ago. That just Anyway, long story. But just amazing, just encouraging me. And just go find someone and send them a message, a WhatsApp, or whatever, and say thank you for the investment that you made in my life. All right. Guys, have a blessed Sunday. Enjoy fellowship together. Enjoying seeing each other. We'll see you guys next week. God bless you.